Fastline Fast Track, presented by Fastline Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to another episode of Fastline Fast Track. We have a jam-packed show for you this week. We'll talk with officials from Kubota Tractor Corporation about the company's entry into the high-horsepower tractor market, the benefits of the Kubota Ranch, and the One Earth, One Life mission statement. We'll also catch up with ag economist David Widmar. We'll talk with us about how he sees the ag economy shaping up for the second half of 2019. And June is Dairy Month, and we'll spend some time with Isaac Nelson, a University of Minnesota student and a rising star in the dairy industry. Then we'll take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop in Nashville, Tennessee, for music from a rising star in the country music industry, recent American Idol competitor Peyton Taylor. You won't want to miss a moment of it. Let's go. First up this week, we head to Grapevine, Texas, just outside Dallas, to talk with Kubota Tractor Corporation executives David Coffin, Martin Carrier, and Todd Stuckey about some of the big developments going on in their company, including a foray into high-horsepower tractors and the new Kubota Ranch, which is taking shape in nearby Ponder, Texas. I had a great time with these guys while I was out there, and I hope you'll enjoy their insights. Welcome to Fastline Fast Track. We are here at the Kubota headquarters in Grapevine, Texas, just outside of Dallas. And uh, my first interview today is with David Coffin, who's the Assistant Director of Engineering, Research, and Development with Kubota. And David, welcome to Fastline Fast Track. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, we're so excited to be here at the uh, headquarters. And David, first of all, I want to uh, start out by just having you explain uh, to our listeners a little bit about what your job here entails with Kubota. Oh, sure. There's uh, two aspects. Uh, the first aspect is R&D, and that's where our team concentrates on all the compliance. Uh, the machines that are made by Kubota are, are mainly designed, there, there are some exceptions, but mainly designed in Japan. So they're global machines. So each major sales region of the world has a team like mine that makes sure all the compliance, the regulations are met. And then the other half of the team makes sure the engineering, product engineering side, makes sure that the product meets the customer's expectations and not actually just meets them, but actually uh, gets them excited about how easy and comfortable their job their work is and their job ends up being at the end. So we would take great pride in matching uh, implements and attachments, accessories uh, to those power machines to meet our company's, our customers' needs. Our dealers are great uh, support partners in that cycle as well. Uh, so it's really putting all of those uh, pieces of information together, customers, dealers, the power machine uh, specifications, and then understanding the jobs that are to be done. Sure. So what do you get into? What is a typical, there may not even be a typical day per se, but what does a day look like for you? Uh, There are meetings with any job like this, of course, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the vast majority of the time is really uh, evaluating the equipment, the implements, and actually doing work to make sure that we are predicting everything that will happen for our customers with the machine uh, when it's actually in a work environment. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've really noticed with the company, there's such a huge priority on reliability and also on safety. Absolutely. Both are correct. So our, our job is to make sure that we've anticipated our customers' needs and the situation our customers will get that machine and implement into. And then we provide the uh, techniques, the training, the design, the machine balance, so all of that is safe. 
We want it to be reliable, and we want it to be accurate in the work that it does. Kubota quite literally is a company on the move. Uh, 2016, you guys relocated from Southern California, moved the headquarters here to Grapevine uh, to be closer to a lot of the farmers and ranchers and uh, dealers that you, that you guys deal with. Uh, in the United States. And uh, then last year, you guys purchased a 320-acre ranch uh, in nearby Ponder, Texas. How has that changed the game for you guys? Oh, it's been a fantastic improvement. In the past, we had exactly the same goals, meet our company's needs, make sure our dealers have everything that they need. But we use land that we contracted with universities, uh, private owners, and we searched all over and set up contracts for those. Mm -hmm. Now we've shortened our time to market for all the improvements that we're doing because we have none of that work to do. We drive 30 miles to the ranch. Mm -hmm. The equipment is there. We do our testing. We do our work. We come back, do our design work for improvements, retest. When we have it right, it goes to market. Mm -hmm. And how much fun is it to get out there and actually get your hands dirty with that stuff? Oh, it's it's the highlight of the day, actually, particularly after talking to customers and dealers and finding out what some of their uh, wishes or what their issues are they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. We try to provide that solution, then go out and actually sit in the seat yeah. and see if it works. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I understand that recently you got up close and personal uh, doing, doing some hay baling uh, in advance of some, some rough weather, just as many of your customers would be doing on a normal day. Exactly the same. Uh, we have 180 acres of hay uh, that we had cut, some of it, not the whole 180, but we had a line of thunderstorms coming in on Saturday morning. So to get all of that hay bale, we worked until 2.30 in the morning. Uh, well, it'd be Saturday morning, Friday night, and uh, the team had a great time. We were all tired on Saturday, but it was a fantastic uh, camaraderie developed to get that work done. And it is real farming yeah. in that kind of a situation. And one of the cool things that I've learned through this is that you guys actually sell that hay back to local farmers. So it's it's really making an impact in, in the community. Correct. The community has been very supportive of us there. So they take our products as for their livestock, mm -hmm. uh, but they also allow us to use their land mm -hmm. as well for some of our testing. And that's been very beneficial. And being a good corporate steward is a huge part of what Kubota does. Uh, I know your, your mission statement is for earth, for life. What does that mission statement mean to you? Oh, that's a very important question. So for, for earth, we do respect the land. And even at someone else's land, we leave it uh, better than we found it. Uh, we try to do that. We make suggestions for that as just the way we treat our own ranch. Mm -hmm. And also that enables us to get more insight on how we get people's lives improved by improving our product, making it safer, making it easier or more convenient. Mm -hmm. We really want to have people feel good when they finish using a Kubota product, not feel tired or exhausted. Yeah. Now you have been with Kubota for nearly seven years. You came from the automotive industry. How did what you learn in that industry translate to what you do now? And uh, how do you apply that on, on a daily basis? And how is it shaping things with Kubota? For me, there has been a lot of transfer from the automotive industry to the agricultural and construction machine industry. Uh, the comfort, uh, sound, how that affects fatigue, vibration, how that affects fatigue, and also the customer wanting to enjoy the product. All of those things are the same. Mm -hmm. 
The technology is also transferable. Mm -hmm. The uh, hardware, software, the telematics, all the innovation that we're seeing today mm -hmm. go into construction equipment. All It doesn't come from automotive, yeah. but it's used there. And all of those uh, safety and user-friendly considerations mm -hmm. all transferred. Sure. The idea is for us to have the machine and the computer do all the work. Yeah. We want to make it easy for the customer to set up and easy for the customer to enjoy using. Mm -hmm. So what is your philosophy behind Kubota's approach to innovation? The innovation is uh, it's a constant effort mm -hmm. to survey all of the appropriate Actually, you have to do the survey first, and then you find the appropriate sure. technologies that meet customers' needs. So it really starts with customer and dealer needs. Mm -hmm. Then we survey. Then we take the matches and start to integrate those into the product. Mm -hmm. And again, it's to make it easy. And, and for the dealers, as an example, with telematics that we're implementing, in the past, a machine would go down. It might have a fault code. The operator would find out. Operator would call the dealer, ask for help. The dealer would send a technician and a truck out to the field. They would take a look at the machine, do some troubleshooting, find out what was wrong, go back to the dealership, get the parts, come back to the field. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a long process. Mm -hmm. Now, that uh, code that's recorded actually happens before the operator knows there's an issue. Mm -hmm. It goes to the operator, also goes to the dealer. Mm -hmm. The dealer can round up parts, bring them, actually call and coordinate with the operator a time to do the corrective action, mm -hmm. take all of that to the corrective action, pick that time when it's not critical for the operator, do the maintenance, back in service, and very little or no interruption. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge improvement, great application for innovation. We're looking for those across the board for precision farming, uh, how we use data that is brought from the farm, how it's shared, uh, how the customer can use it, and how our machine can get it the most accurately reported back to the customer. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that Kubota recently announced was the impending entry into the high horsepower tractor market. Uh, what has your involvement been like in that? And uh, how is that going to change the game for this company? That's a very good question. The uh, high horsepower is actually an extension of our core products. And over time, the implements, attachments, and accessories that our core products have run have required more horsepower, mm -hmm. uh, more complex uh, systems, more data. So the tractor now, in this case, is actually requiring to provide more inputs to the implement. Mm -hmm. And that's for implement control, for actually ground engaging, uh, crop harvesting, all of those have really evolved the same way. So now our tractor, our power machine, has actually evolved the same. So really what we're doing is providing the same services for our customer. And yes, they work at a faster rate, but it provides all the support for the complexity of the implement that's needed today. Mm -hmm. So you yourself grew up on a farm in Michigan. How does what you learned on the farm uh, translate to how you view the, the work that you do here at Kubota? The, the starting point with the earth, the seed, the fertilizer, uh, at least in concept, that is similar. Mm -hmm. The science that's involved and in how to make it more efficient is completely different. It's, yeah. e it's continuing to evolve even today, mm -hmm. evolve more quickly even. Yeah. 
So that is all just a great um, adventure for me keeping up with. And that's something that gets me out of bed just so I can find, okay, today, what's the improvement that we're after? Yeah. And then getting the, uh, the equipment that we build to support that is just the, uh, it really is the energy that keeps my whole team just focused and working and mm-hmm. just enjoying what they do and coming to work every day. But the, uh, the end result of a product on the table or in the barnyard for the livestock that also is the same, yeah. but everything else in the, in between is evolving, and that's the most exciting adventure ever. Mm-hmm. On a personal level, as you drive through rural areas in this country, what does it mean to you when you look out into a field and, and see one of those orange machines out there? Oh, I'm almost like a distracted driver. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's caused me actually to drive through the country slower so I have more time to look for those orange machines. Uh, it's a very exciting feeling to see them in the yard, see what's attached to them, see what the customer's uh, spread looks like, and then seeing them in action. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes I have been accused by my wife of delaying the trip just to pull over and watch. <laughs> I think that's excusable. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, we appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast track and for being such a gracious host the last couple of days as we've been here in grapevine and ponder and uh, it's really exciting to see what you guys have going on here and i, I look forward to coming back and, and doing more with you in the future it's been my pleasure i look forward to that as well all right thank, thank you. you and that's uh, david coffin with kubota Back on Fast Line Fast Track, I've got Martin Carrier, who is the Product Marketing Director for Ag Products for Kubota. And Martin, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So if you could, just uh, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us about what your day-to-day role with the company looks like. Well, um, basically, our role is to be the liaison between uh, the requirement of the farmers and the user of our product and the factory. So being a sales company, Kubota Tractor Corporation, participate in the development of the product, but we mostly focus on bringing the input back to the the application, really. So uh, it's anything that bridges the gap between a factory that could be anywhere in the world and farmers that are down here in the U.S. working day-to-day with those pieces of equipment. Everything you do is with those farmers in mind, and safety and reliability are are two key components of that. Well, Well, what good is an equipment due to you if it's stopped because for service or it has reliability issue it doesn't meet the condition so for us by application that really what it is i mean we may think that a more conditioner will mow and conditioner the same all around the world well it's not some part of the world more humidity some other drier uh you see rocky field condition you'll see all of that so it becomes a safety issue if you don't have the right garden place and the right component for that market but it also becomes a problem if the maintenance is too long because we haven't addressed the problem, the root cause of the problem. If you need rock protection, well, bill it in because fixing later on is never a good solution. They're basically farming, especially uh, hay production and crop and forage production. It's a race against Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, she usually has the last say. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to deal with that and do our best. So if the maintenance, the serviceability and, and the ease of use is there, well, we gave them the best tool to, to fight that that well, I wouldn't say war against Mother Nature because again she's going to win, yeah. <laughs> but that's we got to give them the right tools. Tractors are the same. We know that there are some maintenance that needs to be done at certain point, but the longer are the interval, the easier it is to service, the easier it is to use. Uh, well, that makes your day more comfortable. Your day lasts longer, and if you need to finish at three a.m. bailing, well. 
that's what you got to do. So the tractor needs to be able to, to do that. It, does, it cannot be the weak link of your operation. Yeah. So that's our focus when we develop those products. You know, Henry Ford once said, uh, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. But uh, as far as what you guys do, you put a ton of effort into being customer-centric, trying to find out what the customer wants and, and give them that rather than just throwing whatever you have out at the market. It's interesting you brought on Henry Ford because Henry Ford is known for a big major change in the production, mm -hmm. basically by saying it's all going to be black for everyone, simplicity in the assembly. Now, don't need to worry about forecasting the right color or anything. This is what you got. Yeah. Well, it made sense in that era for that type of product. Mm -hmm. But for us, it's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to cater to specific needs. So again, using more conditioner as an example, some have conditioner. Well, Typically, it's a more conditioner than our DMORs, our straight mores. They do not have a conditioner, type of conditioner different, and we need to adapt to the market. That uh, any color, as long as it's black strategy, would not work for us. We need to be much closer to our user and deliver what they're asking for, because what they're asking for is what they need. It's not just because they feel like it. It's the reality of the field. So um, that for us, it's really being close to the application, being close to the end user, not necessarily answering to what he's asking, yes, but understanding why he's asking. Because maybe sometime we're going to propose a better solution that customer could not have thought about, and we're working together to address the root cause of the problem. Why is he asking for such a solution? That's what brought Kubota forward over now over a century. And, and it's not just listening to the customers, but also listening to the dealer network. You have more than 1,100 dealers uh, that, that you deal with and uh, just a, a wealth of feedback from them and not just in sales, but also in parts and service, which is a huge part of the business. Correct. Because uh, these guys also are, well, our first customers are dealer network, their customers, the end user, and they have also requirement in there. I mean, in season, when it's time to sell any piece of equipment, everyone's ready at the same time. So for them, it's about the assembly. It's about the serviceability. It's about parts availability. Customer is going to be frustrated if we don't supply to the dealer. I mean, at the end, the chain goes to the dealer, and it, it means that we need to train them, uh, training at very a lot of different level on how to demo the product, how to maintain the product. Just assembly is an issue. Training them on what part level they should uh, stock. So, uh, yeah, they're our first line of defense. Again, if we want to discuss that in a, from a war angle, but in that case, it's not. It's truly a partnership between us, the dealer, and the end user. They're buying a tool. They're not buying a toy. They need it to work, uh, and they need the support team that understand that and is willing to go the extra mile to, to get it done. I mean, um, this is not a nine-to-five job. Because yeah. if it was, we'll uh, face some challenges, <laughs> weather and, and uh, field condition and season. I mean, and the hay tool season on the north is much shorter than the one you'll see in the southern part of the country. Mm -hmm. And east to west, it's the same thing. It changes a lot. So we need to, to help our dealer understand what's going on, the demographic of the product, who's buying, when are they buying, what are they buying, what kind of support are they going to need. That's part of what I'm doing every day. Yeah. And when you talk about facing challenges... I don't know if there's ever been a more challenging time in, in the modern era. There, there's just this, you know, for lack of a better term, perfect storm between uh, constant changing weather conditions, yeah. market conditions, <clears throat> rising input costs, so many things that just have a, a producer's head swirling. 
And then comes the need for equipment, and, and you guys sit here and need to find a way to, to be able to simplify that as much as you can and make them feel confident yeah. uh, in their purchase. Well, you said it. You're absolutely right. Um, these are tough times for farmers, whether it's a dairy farmer, beef farmer, any crop out there, the margin are tighter. Uh, weather is seems to be tougher. The season is not any longer, but we need to produce more. Uh, all that put pressure on these people. And on top of that, equipment is not getting cheaper in the sense that we ask for new feature, cost of steel, cost of everything's going up. So there's things that we can control, things we can. But we need to make sure that the return on investment on those pieces of equipment actually gets better with time because for them, they don't control the price of the product they sell. Whatever commodity they sell, they have very limited control on that. They can control what they spend, but they need those tools. And and I'd like to find a piece of equipment that never wears out. They buy it once and they got it forever, but that's not the case. What we do with those pieces of equipment is very tough. So uh, trying to to make it cheaper for them to to run those equipment in the long run, not necessarily the cost of purchasing the equipment, but the cost over the full life cycle of the piece of equipment is something that we're concerned with because we understand their reality. Um, we sure hope that the market goes up, mm-hmm. but again, someday it's going to go down again. This this ag business always going to be a roller coaster. Uh, it seems like the amplitude of of the cycle are getting worse, uh, which is not necessarily a good news. But we still need to feed people. Yeah. That part's not going to change. So uh, we're fully supportive of of our customers because. They need us. We need them. We're in this together. And one of the exciting things that you guys have is the impending rollout of high horsepower tractors. What has it been like to work on that project and what are the hopes for uh, that segment? It is. Uh, it has been a very interesting journey. Um, we've been working much closer to our engineering team. This is kind of uh, one of the first of those product where we, from the ground up, build the requirement for that project. Uh, as you know now, we're using a partner uh, to work on this project. It's a tractor that will be built in North America, sold in North America only, Canada and the US. Mm-hmm. It's not designed to be a worldwide tractor. So we really put our own requirement in there, working with a local supplier. Uh, they're customizing a product specific, specifically for us. Uh, it's very exciting. Um, our hope is that uh, this product will fill a segment that we feel has been neglected a little bit. I mean, utility tractors are becoming larger and larger, and there is a segment where there's a huge gray zone between utility and roll crop tractor, and they need a tractor that can perform in both applications. And this is where, what we're after. Somewhat, if I had to put it in a nutshell, I would say that this is the roll crop tractor of a livestock farmer. That's what we're after. Uh, again, you want to buy it for use only for your row crop application. It might be a little small if you're at the bigger end of that corn planter, 36 rows or something like that. But it can also work uh, in that application. But yet, it's still maneuverable enough and small enough to be your large utility tractor. We really want to bridge that gap between those two segments. I mean, the, the utility tractor segment has been a very good market for Kubota for the last almost 50 years now. We've been in that segment with loaders, four-wheel drive, cab tractor. 20, 30 years ago, that utility tractor was 60 to 70 horsepower. Now it's 100 plus horsepower. So uh, we need to evolve and follow the trends of the market and deliver the right product there. And that's just what we're doing with this bigger product. And you grew up on a farm in Canada. 
Yep. What uh, experiences that you had there do you take into this job? Well, one of the most important lessons I've learned, well, I wish I had learned it a little better. I'd be even better at it, is patience. Yeah. You deal with outside forces that you're not going to control, whether they're weather, market, whatever. Uh, you may want to do all the things the way you want on a farm. What I need it done now and that way, well, good luck with that. There's always going to be someone throwing a wrench at you and, then, and that's not going to work and you need to adapt. And I think that's the most important lesson I learned. You may have plan A. Better have plan B and C because something's going to happen at some point and you're going to have to to basically readapt to that. And I think that's uh, the team we're building here in the ag group. They're all coming from farms. They all have that kind of background and they all have the understanding that, yeah, here's a game plan. But let's prepare for the worst because most likely it will happen. <laughs> so that's the, the approach we want to have out there to support our farmers. We understand that every day they're facing challenges that they could not see coming. So they need to adapt. So that's what I learned from farming. And that's what I hope that uh, we're going to use as a best practice here in this company to, to make sure that we can adapt ourselves to the need of the business. Mm -hmm. What's the most satisfying part of this job for you? Um, seeing results, seeing things changing. Um, the corporate world may seem extremely slow from the outside. Uh, and sometimes we are, and that's, that's the reality. Developing a new product takes time. I mean, the life cycle of a product is extremely long. And um, taking three to five years to come up with a new product is normal. But from the inside, we can see that it's like raising a kid. <laughs> you see the first steps, you hear the first word, and you see all those kind of things. And whenever... Um, Whenever we, we release a product and, and after launch, we start to see um, that it is being sold, that it does serve the purpose you intended and customer are using it and they're happy about it and it fixes a problem they had. That's where we get our satisfaction from. Sure. And I would imagine each day on this job is a learning experience for you. Well, I'm a firm believer that the day you stop learning, you better retire. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> learning is an attitude. It's not... Um, uh, that that's what it is. I've always thought that school, whatever you're going to high school or all the way to being a doctor degree, whatever you learn how to learn. Uh, and we need to adapt. This market has changed tremendously over the last 20 years and it will change again. By the time I retire from this position years from now, I'll, I will probably look back and say, wow, <laughs> that went through all those changes. So we need to learn on, on, on the market. We need to learn on the product. You need to stay up to date with your competitors. And they're not static either. They're moving as well. And, and we want them to move. We want them to challenge us. And uh, in order to, to still be um, in the game years from now, I got to keep learning. And Every day I also learn a little bit about myself, maybe back to that patience thing that I should have learned a little better sooner. But uh, no, that's uh, there's always something new. Exciting. Can you imagine doing anything other than what you're doing right now? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, um, I've worked with farming and equipment all my life. I'm fortunate enough that those two passions can be uh, brought together uh, in a career. 
And I sure hope I don't have to look for any other career path at any other time. This is a fantastic job. And I sure hope that more kids out of high school would say, hey, why don't I go into that farming equipment business? We could hire a ton of people right now. We need more graduate from schools to, to come work into that line of work. And I can tell them, don't hesitate. There's uh, some great, job, great jobs out there. You bring up a good point. So from that standpoint, how does the industry make that happen? It's tough. Uh, one of the things that's tough is, um, unfortunately, whenever you hear about farming on the news, it's usually bad news. Mm-hmm. There's been a flood, there's been this, that, a trade war, and it's mostly bad news. How do you attract a 16, 17-year-old boy to go after a business that's always talking about bad news? Bad news. So Kubota, we're working with some schools uh, at different level, colleges and then high school and vocational school. And at pretty much usually doing at a regional level. There's no need for a national program, but we're trying to make sure that we get some of those kids out of school to our dealer, get a job, train. Uh, the fun foundation, fundamental of the training needs to be done by those school. And then Kubota University, our own training department, will help them on the specifics of the Kubota product. But um, we need to build a better image on, on the farming community. And I'm sure farmers are facing the same thing when they need to hire uh, workers. It's, it's a, we have a little bit of an image problem in this world. I mean, I'm talking way more than farm machinery now, the whole ag world. Uh, outside of our own circle, people still look at us like, I don't know if there's some potential there. There is a huge potential in farm machinery. I mean, it's not going to change. It's going to be a high tech. It's going to be uh, fast paced changing. It, and it's no different than a lot of other industries out there. So as many kids we can get interested about that into schools, I mean, there's not going to be any shortage of job anytime soon. Yeah. Well, and it's an interesting time to be in it because I know we've talked with a lot of people uh, where, you know, the average age of a farmer is 57. So you're still, and I know you guys are in this business, still catering to that audience. But at the same time, you're having to kind of indoctrinate and engage a younger audience and bring them along with you as well. What is that push-pull like? Um, true, it's a constant challenge. I mean, I'm sometimes I'm concerned with the average age of the farmer. I hope that the next generation is going to step in. Uh, we need to to talk their language. We need to adapt to themselves. But that being said, even our older generation of farmers, they still trade their commodities online. Uh, they still use, I mean, they, they are... Um, it's interesting from a media perspective. They want to read that print magazine, but when they do their business, they do it online a lot more than we expect. Uh, the younger generation obviously needs to 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 be entertained in a different way. Uh, they need information now. They need it quick. They're Twitter and Facebook generation, they're not going to read a 10-page article. They're just going to read that tweet. And then if they want to know more about it, they'll dig deeper. But they need to be... Um, attracted a different way that's kind of a, a different approach but it's not only in farming it's a ge- generational change so for us um we're trying to to stay closer to these uh younger customers by providing what they need i mean we have a we have an ICT department, a technology department here at Kubota Tractor Corporation and we're looking forward to integrate technology in everything we do not because it's trendy and hey i've got that little flashy app here that's not the point the point is they need that to leverage the fact that there are some shortage of labors in certain applications. So they need, they want more data. Yeah. And uh, they want data on everything and technology can provide that. It will not in farming replace the uh, human decision at some point saying, well, those are all the data. 
what is the right decision, computer are not going to do that for us. But they need to, 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 to look at different perspective. I mean, soil sample, crop sample, uh, all, all those kind of things that needs to be um, analyzed will still have to be analyzed by an educated farmer. Yeah. Um, and the younger generation are looking at faster rate of data. That's one of the difference. They're not as patient which is a good and a bad thing. Uh, and um, I guess just like myself getting older, maybe I'll get more patient eventually. <laughs> but, but no, it's uh, truly we need to, to understand. And that's, again, back to our application conversation. Application is not only about the field, it's about the user and what are their requirements. Yeah. And that's uh, that's why we, we want to keep our uh, American-based team here in Texas uh, looking outside these walls and then spending as much time as possible in the field trying to understand what make them pull the trigger on a piece of equipment. What is the key decision-making option, feature, benefit? And a lot of that's about technology. Well, Martin, we appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. And we appreciate you guys being such great uh, hosts the past couple of days as we've been here uh, between... Uh, the headquarters in Grapevine and also the, the ranch out in Ponder, which is just a, a magnificent place. And, uh, we appreciate you uh, pulling back the curtain and letting us check it out. That was a pleasure. All right. Thank you much. That's Ma much. Martin Carrier, the Product Marketing Director for Ag Products for Kubota. Back on Fast Line Fast Track, have a really special guest here. It's Todd Stuckey, who is the Senior Vice President of Marketing, Product Support, and Strategic Projects for Kubota. And Todd, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. So uh, you, you have been with the company since 2013. It's your sixth year, uh, 23 years with Agco prior. Um, tell us a bit about what the day-to-day -day operation looks like for you. Well, my responsibility is, is marketing, and there's product marketing in there. So we have four product segments, mm -hmm. uh, from turf RTVs to small tractors to construction equipment, and then our ag equipment, mm -hmm. which is our, our new products that were coming out in the, the ag se sector. Also look after the uh, marketing, all the promotion, advertisement, uh, technology. I've got an ICT department and also training. Uh, we do a lot of training, both internal to um, our employees and to our dealers and even to customers. And then uh, lastly is uh, product support and service. And um, so it keeps a, a busy day, but I got a great team to support us here at Kubota. Sure. And in, innovation is moving things along rapidly in this company, but this is a company with a very rich history. We, we sure do. I mean, Kubota's been around since uh, 1895. Uh, we're going on our uh, 130th year in business. Um, we just keep going along. In the U.S., we've been here since 1972, and uh, pretty soon we'll have our 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So uh, grown from, you know, just a very small company to right now uh, a fairly large company. Mm -hmm. And it's a company on the move. You guys moved to Grapevine from Southern California uh, about three years ago. H how has that changed uh, the, the game for you guys? You know, when Kubota started, I mentioned 1972, for a Japanese company, California was the right place to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we grew, we needed to get closer to our dealers and our customer. Mm -hmm. And um, being, and especially as we expand, expand in the upper Midwest, uh, being centrally located and, and closer to it, we can react quicker. Mm -hmm. So um, it was time for us to move. Uh, and, uh, you know, we searched out there where the right places to be. 
and we ended up here in Grapevine, uh, Texas, which is right by Dallas uh, Fort Worth Airport. And it's it's been a, a very good move for us. Mm-hmm. And the next step uh, came a year ago when you guys purchased uh, Kubota Ranch. Yeah, and you know when we moved out of California, uh, we start thinking we can get a ranch or get some land. We have three hundred and I think nineteen acres of land that we can do stuff with. Uh, we can test our equipment. We can train out on our ranch. We can. Uh, have our dealer meetings or our, our dealer shows out there and it gives us access to do a lot of things and uh, it's just started now and, and every day I see the team utilizing the ranch more and more. Mm-hmm. That's exciting is to see them get out there and get their hands dirty and have fun with it. It is and um, it's it's real application and this ranch is not uh, like my farm in Ohio just farm ground. This ranch has terrain, it has high ground, low ground, it, it has uh, you know, creeks running through it. So we can do anything from uh, simulating, um, you know, very extreme mowing conditions with our turf divisions to uh, RTVs riding trails to cutting hay to digging holes with our CE equipment. So it just gives us um, access to a variety of different applications. Mm -hmm. And it's only going to make our products better and more adaptable for the North American Users mm-hmm. and you mentioned uh, your own farming background. Uh, describe to our listeners what what that entails. I grew up in Ohio. Um, we had a potato farm, which was odd, but my grandfather started it back in the Depression just to to survive and and to feed the people. And uh, it grew. It's a century farm now. Me and my brother are, are partners. A couple thousand acres in Ohio. I don't do a whole lot except for uh, watch him do the work. Mm-hmm. I kind of look over uh, some of the financials. But it, what's good about it is it, it keeps you grounded and in, 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 um, very close to what's happening with the American farmer at this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, currently as we sit here, we have no crop planted. It's raining every day. Um, there's a lot of stress with the, the American farmer, but you know, everything works out and, um, hopefully we can transition that farm to the fourth generation and, uh, it can continue on for several more years. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine coming from a farming background, then you start to look at everything you do in your day to day here with Kubota through that lens. You sure do. And, and what we say at Kubota is really how, you know, being tied to the farmer is it's customer first. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens at the customer? And if we can solve those problems or make that experience uh, pleasant, that customer will look at our products. And it's something that we try to engineer mm-hmm. into our products. Uh, it's the quality, the reliability, the simplistic, the intuitiveness. Um, what does the brand stand for? And all those things are driven from the customer. And then once you go from a customer, you know, and once a customer is using it, it goes back to the product support. So then now you need a very strong dealer base that can take care of that customer. Um, I learned that on our farm is you can do a lot of things by yourself, but when it comes down to crunch time, that dealer is crucial for you. Not only to get you the new equipment, but to fix and have parts and service for your existing equipment. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so important. And as a manufacturer, we need to have all that in place. We need to provide the um, 
the training. We need to provide the guidelines. We need to provide the backup support to our dealers so he can take care of our customers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that just continues to ramp up here at Kubota, especially with the the ranch, is is research and development and constantly improving and just relentlessly getting better at what you guys are doing. And uh, if you could just talk a bit about your philosophy behind the Kubota approach to innovation. Um, the Kubota approach is really, um, again, it starts with the customer. And, you know, we kind of watch what are, what are the, how the customer is using the piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. And then we want to go out and assimilate that to make sure with the Kubota Ranch especially is that we can drive the durability and the quality. Um, and then uh, you can drive durability and quality, but it's the things that you don't see in your design. And when you put it out on the ranch and you use it every day and you observe uh, how the equipment is being used, you can perfect it even more. It's the things you don't see in a lab or, or when you're designing it. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, it allows us. And it also allows us to have the engineers um to have hands-on access of what they design and they can use it at their dispense. You know, this is not a production farm. This is a farm for R&D and and for us to use it on. So at any time, if we need muddy conditions, we can go out there when it's wet in muddy conditions. If we need dry conditions or if we need uh, timely, I mean, we have uh, so many days to get a test done. We use our ranch and we get it done. So it allows us a great flexibility. Sure. Now, how is Kubota evolving to innovate technologically? I mean, now more than ever, there's there's just reams of data to be able to go back to. And you mentioned the customer feedback, dealer feedback. How does all that play into it? You know, right now I have uh, the ICT, Information Technology Communication uh, team, working for me. And it's really around technology. And our mission is how do we apply technology to the equipment to increase the user experience of that equipment? And different examples is, um, one, it can be in telematics. Telematics will read the engine or the equipment health. They give us readings. We read the CAN bus, and we can monitor how that equipment is operating. Um, or we can trace it. Uh, you know, the, we have a large farm or a large construction operation or a national account rental situation where they want to know where this equipment is because it's in several different areas out there. Well, we can, you know, do that with an app. I mean, it, the telematics comes back and we can see right where it is. But not only can we see where it is, we can see how much fuel's in it. We can see how many engine hours is on it. And we also can see if there's any air codes uh, overheating, you may say, or, or anything with that PC equipment. Now, that will um, translate into a value to certain customers. You know, if he has a fleet of equipment out there and, and he wants to know, you know, how do I service it? Well, when you get your hours intervals, you can automatically service that at night or at off times. That's one of them. Another one is machine control. If you're uh, precision, precision ag's been around there, so that's machine control. How do we do auto guide? How does that work with our tractors? Or if you move into the construction field, it's how how can we do automatic uh, or uh, grading and and uh, <clears throat> the machine control of the implements that are on it. So technology can go on and on and on. And then my service department, they're saying, I want to see 
all the data off of the tractor so we can throw that into QA Mm -hmm. and we can do predictive analysis or it can help us solve any kind of service issues that we have and or if we can see a customer's using um, a piece of equipment maybe outside its parameters and we can do better training and and better support on it. They wouldn't do that, would they? Oh, never. Farmers (laughs) never do that. But um, so so those are the kind of things is, you know, it's, it's technology to improve the customer customer experience. And it's also technology that allows the dealer to give better support to the customer. And um, we're looking at all of them. And and the the difficult part about it is how to make it intuitive and and how to control the cost on it where the value exceeds the cost. So one of the exciting things that you guys are getting ready to jump into is the introduction uh, impending of a high-horsepower tractor. Uh, what is that going to mean to the product lineup, and why is now the right time to do that? Well, we uh, we launched our M7 tractor back in 2015, and um, you know our tractors go from our BX series down to 20 horsepower up to 170 now. And we really can't go any smaller. I mean, and and we want to continue to grow. And our dealers have asked us to continue to grow. And um, we thought there's one more size to to fill out a segment. Uh, We're really focusing on that dairy segment. Uh, Dairy usually has a hay tied to it. Uh, We bought a hay tool company, Coverlin, um, in 2011. And we're bringing that here in North America, and actually it's going quite well. So to round out that whole segment, um, we needed to go uh, one chassis larger, and that's what we did. Now, we're really concerned about uh, our resources and and making sure we support our core business, our compact uh, utility tractors. So that's why we we partnered with a custom OEM agreement with Bueller. Uh, Bueller Industries out of Canada, their focus is solely on high-horsepower tractors. And um, we thought it was a good partnership, and they uh, designed a tractor for us under our specs. And, and now we're able to uh, enter this market with a, um, you know, a Kubota look and feel and a, a Kubota tractor that rounds out this segment. Now, yes, it will do row crop uh, in certain areas, but it's not a complete focused tractor on row crop. It's more around that dairy life, livestock uh, utility segment, and uh, we're quite excited about it. Mm-hmm. You're entering the market. You talk about dairy at a time when the, the, the dairy industry is going through some challenges. Um, but with challenge comes opportunity, and I would imagine that's what you guys are looking at. Yeah, there is. And, you know, there's never a right time or a wrong time to get into an industry. I mean, we're new to this. Uh, there, the industry is depressed at this time, or it's at a, you know pretty much an all-time low on the industry volumes. But we have learned that, and that's the Kubota way, is you, you never give up. You keep pushing forward. And getting into it at the tough times will make us smarter and we'll, uh, we'll learn a lot and we'll have a, a, a footprint or a, a foothold. And as the industry takes off, then uh, we'll be able to capitalize it on capitalize it better. Mm-hmm. You jump into an industry when it's, um, you know, so, um, so good mm-hmm. that you really don't have to work very hard to sell. It sometimes you don't 
you uh, don't learn everything you should. And believe me now, in, in this conditions, we're learning everything we need. So we need to have the right programming, the right leasing, the right product specs, because the, the, this industry is depressed and um, these customers are, are looking for true value. And if we can deliver it now, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be able to continue to grow and deliver it as an industry rebounds. Sure. And one of the, the things that Kubota really hammers home is the mission statement for Earth, for life. What does that mission statement mean to you? I mean, we it's something that we think about all the time for Earth, for life, for food, water, and the environment mm-hmm. is um, is the founding fathers and the founding mission of our company. And, and how do we do right for the land, how do we do right for the environment, and how do we do right for you know society with with water and so forth? So, um, it, it's a bigger it's a, a bigger message than what is right for our sales company today. It's more what is right. right? Can we make an improvement um, in society? And it's it's something we look at all the time. Is how can we add add value and how can we pr- protect our society and how can we do um, continue to do right for for everything that we're involved in mm-hmm. and, and being a good corporate steward seems to be a really big part of the culture here it is and i miss that one is you know how do we do right for the the local communities our philanthropic efforts uh, we teamed up a few years ago with farmer veterans coalition and and we give uh, five tractors a year from veterans that come back that want to get into farming. And it's probably been the single thing to me that's moved me the most is we've been really able to make a difference to somebody who's trying to get back into society. Uh, we support the, the FFA. We support our local communities. Um, you know, a team of us go out to the, the grapevine community here and, and do volunteering to, to clean up the parks and, and the, the lakes and so forth. And it all goes back to our mission state for, for, for life. And we're really trying to instill that in all of our employees. And uh, it really makes you feel good when you do something like that. And you know, you know, that's what it's all about. What's the most satisfying aspect of this job for you? I think the most satisfying is, is one is, is when every once in a while, you know, I'll get a phone call or a letter from a customer that, that just says, you know, I've been able to do, you know, whatever. And I, I could never done that before if I wouldn't had this Kubota piece of equipment or, I just want to call you up and say, you know, your dealer went beyond uh, beyond the call of duty to take care of me. Mm-hmm. Or I see an employee um, go beyond the call of duty to take care of a customer or to take care of a dealer. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, that means that we're, we're trying to instill the Kubota, you know, for Earth for Life and the Kubota way and what, what we stand for. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to tell people to do it, it happens. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's what keeps me going. And, and also, you know, on the other side is uh, we're growing. I mean, this company is investing a lot of money and, uh, and time and effort into growing our business and uh, to building a global major brand here in North America. And if you look at our past investments uh, through moving this headquarters to uh, Dallas, to purchasing land pride in Great Plains, to currently in Kansas City, where we're putting our logistics center in, building two one million square foot warehouses for parts and whole goods with our fifth division. 
And, you know, we expanded, <clears throat> excuse me, our warehouse in Dallas or in Atlanta. And um, that infrastructure is going to be there to support our dealers who are going to support our customers. Mm -hmm. And um, to see that expansion and to see the effort and to take care of our customers and dealers, uh, that's what makes me tick. Those principles also seem to really trickle down to your dealerships. You're a little over 1,100 strong. And, uh, you know, not just with sales, but parts and service, uh, just really customer focused. We do. And, and what we say in, um, at Kubota here is, is we have a partnership with our dealers and uh, we take it serious. Um, it's not lip service. Uh, we, we listen to our dealers. Um, our boss, Harry Oshida, has a catchword of agility, meaning when there is an issue or there's something going on, go to the spot uh, where that is. And just this week, uh, you know, I was, you know, on a plane going to a dealer um, firsthand to see the situation. And, and I think that's how we approach it. You know, every voice counts. Every dealer's voice is very important to us. Yes, we probably can't do everything, but we do listen and we try to support our dealers. That can be our uniqueness, mm -hmm. is, is how do we support the dealer and how do we win their business? Yeah. And if we can support them and win their business and they can make a profit with our products, they'll probably support our products in the way that we want them to. So when you're traveling the back roads of Texas or you're back home in Ohio, what does it mean to you when, when you look out into those fields and, and see one of those orange machines? You know, I, I uh, especially in Texas, uh, Texas, the landscape here fits the Kubota brand very well. Uh, if you drive the metro uh, Dallas-Fort Worth market or the metro Atlanta market, you're seeing CE Kubota equipment. Every time I see one, it makes me smile. And, and as I move up into the upper Midwest, it's, um, you know, I grew up in an area that there wasn't a lot of Kubotas. But when I go back home now and I drive around and my wife says, you better watch where you're driving. You're going to run off the road. You, you know, I'm rubbernecking looking at those Kubotas, but it really makes me feel good. I know in the uh, Louisville area where we are, we, we see more and more of it dotting the landscape too. So you're doing something right. And we try to. Well, that's excellent. Well, Todd, we appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. And we look forward to staying in touch with you here as we go. And we sure appreciate you guys being such gracious hosts while we've been down here in Grapevine and in Ponder. Thank you. Next up, we've reached the midpoint of the year, so I thought it would be a good time to catch up with David Widmar, the co-founder of Agricultural Economic Insights. He's an ag economist, writer, speaker, and researcher who has his finger on the pulse of the ag economy, so I wanted to pick his brain about what we should expect for the second half of 2019. Well, David, welcome back to Fast Line Fast Track. Glad to join you. Thanks for reaching out. Well, uh, I was going back and listening to some of our previous conversation earlier this year, and now we're kind of at the midpoint of the year. And uh, there was one thing that stuck out at me that you said, and that was uh, there is not a whole lot of room for error in 2019. And now we're uh, about the midpoint of the year, and uh, it seems like the whole uh, year, more or less, has been a comedy of errors. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh 2019 is going to is shaping up to be and is going to be a very memorable year for a lot of producers, um, and it's just been a lot of frustrations from from the planting side of things. It's been frustrations from the the trade and the and the demand side of of our our grains and oil seed uh, usage, and it's just been an interesting, challenging year. And it as you mentioned, it's halfway through, and there's still six months of uncertainty to to foster. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, even you talk about the six months, uh, th- that would put us about harvest time. But to be able to harvest, you've got to be able to put something in the ground. And that's been a huge challenge for a lot of producers around the country. Yes, we are sort of uh, in uncharted territory with respect to plantings, planting pace, prevented plantings. Uh, producers are having to make a lot of tough decisions. Do they plant late? Do they switch uh, maybe they're corn acres for soybeans. Uh, do they uh, file for prevent plant? And, and then, of course, sort of the backdrop to all of this is that it's not a great farm economy outlook. Uh, we've had a rally associated with this weather market uh, scare, but broadly speaking, it's still uh, ending stocks uh, are expected to go higher. We might not see that with preventive planting, but it's sort of a crummy outlook. And we have this uh, big challenge when we face planting season. And so a lot of uncertainty producers are going to have to make a lot of decisions on the fly and uh, dial it in as they get uh, through the planting season. I think, and we really noticed in the uh, eastern Corn Belt, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Michigan, that's where the planting progress has been the, the toughest for producers. And I have to tell you, of all the people in the ag space that I follow on social media, uh, your, your Twitter uh, account uh, is one of the more uh, interesting and engaging that, that I follow. And uh, uh, you do a great job of kind of uh, throwing food for thought out there. And uh, w- w- one of the things that uh, I saw you post a couple of days ago, uh, I'm, I'm going to read here for, for the listeners. Uh, you posed the question, has anyone heard of agribusiness dropping input prices such as seed or crop protection, et cetera, in light of late uh, prevent planting decisions? Um, that, that's a huge concern. I'm sure the, the people on the other end of that are saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. We, we can't really uh, afford to drop those prices. But uh, if you're a producer, uh, that is a huge concern because those prices aren't really coming down. Well, I should say the response to that was crickets. There was no response to that, <laughs> that tweet out there. But as an economist, we just sort of look at this uh, from, the, from you know all angles. We like to slice the apple in a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. So when we headed into this weather concern, the market responded. We saw market prices go higher. And now as producers kind of cross that insurance threshold, they're facing less insurance coverage for every day they late plant. And so I guess when I think about it, one of the ways that you would incentivize producers to continue planting uh, is through higher market prices, but also lower cost of production. And um, I just was curious if anyone had heard a lower cost of production out there, and and we haven't seen uh, anything about that. But, you know, it sort of gets back to all the complications around um, this delayed plant versus prevent plant scenario is uh, when producers start maybe not using all the seeds they booked or not needing all the crop protection they had prepaid or bought earlier, how how are they going to have that conversation with their ag retailer or ag suppliers as to how they go about those inputs that they might not have had to use? Mm-hmm. And that's great food for thought, and that's something that we're going to keep digging on here, both uh, uh, for our print products and, and for Fast Line, Fast Track, because I think that will bear watching as this year plays out and even as uh, folks start making uh, purchasing decisions for 2020. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we've kind of gotten this. You know, the prevent plant scenario is really interesting because when we look at it historically speaking, about prevented plant acres have been about – 1.7% of total acres for corn. And so we've been running 
kind of an average would be about 1.5 million acres annually. In the last few years, we had been well below that, um, sort of around 1 million, and sort of some high historic expectations might be closer to 3 million. And so it's an interesting setup where we had been running well below long-run averages, and so now we're going to start exceeding sort of what we saw historically uh, for both last, the last few years, but also sort of all of history that we have going back the last 20 years or so for prevent planning. And so, again, this is an uncharted territory scenario. Um, we have a, economists will have a long discussion about this as to how knowable or unknowable was this sort of uh, scenario to play out. Uh, but this is definitely an unusual territory for a lot of producers. Uh, it's going to be have a big impact across the whole Corn Belt and across the whole U.S., but for some producers, it might mean uh, they didn't get any of their corn or, or uh, any of their soybeans planted. So locally, this could be a very uh, difficult scenario for producers. Mm-hmm. And in every challenging situation, uh, th- there is a sliver of opportunity. Where do you see opportunity within all of this? Well, right now we have had, uh, we've seen corn, soybeans, and a little bit on the wheat. We've seen some market rallies. There is a whole lot of uncertainty with respect to how large the corn crop might be. Uh, we're not going to know for sure where preventive plant acres come in until producers start filing with the FSA. That's in the middle of July. And so it'll be August and then September before we know what preventive plant acres come in at. And then, of course, yield actual yield surveys from the USDA come uh, late August into September and October. And so right now is the sort of apex of uncertainty, and we've seen some market rallies. Yes, commodity prices could go higher, but the opportunity here for a lot of producers is they look back at their crop budgets, they look at sort of where bases are in their market, they look at the futures market, and there could be an opportunity for a lot of producers out there uh, to lock in some of their uh, cost of production or lock in some of their bushels and have a cost of production break-even scenario, or if not, some profitability. So the market has responded. This is an opportunity to potentially look at uh, selling some of your crop. Of course, the uncertainty here is will the markets go higher as we go through the summer or will they go lower as we go through the summer? But the opportunity here is to maybe market their crop at a price that we haven't seen uh, in the last 10 or 12 months. Now, a lot of folks had their eyes on uh, what was going to happen with the USDA and the federal government and the, and the MFP uh, we've had a few weeks now uh, post-announcement to kind of digest that. Uh, how do you see that playing out, and uh, uh, do you think uh, enough will be done there, or, or what more needs to be done if not? You know, that's a, a great question. So uh, after spending all of 2018 telling us there would not be uh, a trade mitigation payment for 2019, uh, the USDA came out and confirmed uh, sort of the chatter of rumor that, that they would be doing it in early June, uh, or excuse me, in the May, they said they would be making uh, an MFP payment for 2019. That release, however, sort of left more questions than answers. Uh, it's the direct payment portion of that, which they're calling MFP again, uh, has some big differences. Last year, if you all remember, we took in how many bushels we raised of the eligible commodities, so primarily corn, soybeans, wheat, and cotton as well. We took in all the, the production, the bushels of the pounds, and they multiply that by a factor, and that's how the checks were uh, cut. This year is going to be different. So you go in and you report all the acres for the eligible commodities uh, that you planted. So you report your corn, soybean, wheat, cotton, um, 
the list is quite long this year. You can report those acres when you do the middle of July, you know, the FSA. And then there's going to be a county-level payment. And so that county-level payment is based on historic production, historic allocation between corn versus wheat versus soybeans, et cetera, and sort of a, an impact, how much has each of these crops been impacted. And so each county is going to have the same payment rate for every acre, but again, it's going to vary by county. But this is a big difference, um, and so a lot of questions start to come up from that. So right now we don't know what those payment rates are, don't know when we'll know what those payment rates are. Uh, we don't know how prevented planting acres are going to be counted uh, for that, that trade situation, that trade aid situation. And so, uh, and the only thing we truly know right now is that at the end of July, uh, one-third of the payments will be uh, distributed end of July, 1st of August. And then there could be two rounds of payments at the end of the fall and early 2020, depending on how trade negotiations with China shape up. So that's kind of the highlights. Again, uh, a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty, but... As we move through, we expect this to resolve itself. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question. As we talked in in February, uh, we mentioned that uh, a lot of the way this is all going to move is contingent on what happens with China and what happens with the USMCA. And uh, as we sit here in June, there hasn't been a whole lot of movement uh, to the good on on either of those fronts. (laughs) I think if we had a survey... Uh, in, in July of 2018, if we asked producers if they thought we'd still be in a trade war uh, in July of 2019, I think very few of them would have said yes. In fact, uh, my business partner and I were sort of debating last summer, will it get resolved before or after uh, the midterm 2018 election? So we, it, we really hadn't thought about this, and I think the administration and the USDA hasn't either. Like, what's the long-term... Uh, what does the long term look like for this this trade situation? Again, I mentioned earlier, they spent all of 2018 saying there would be no 2019 payment, but but here we are. And so uh, we thought this would be quick. We thought this would be uh, resolved early. Now we have China going into its second year, and now, as you mentioned, we could be uh, escalating situations here with Mexico uh, throwing USMCA for a loop. Um, you know, this is all adding and feeding into that uncertainty. This is a really uh, challenging, uh, so it's a challenging farm economy. Low prices, low farm income, and then you add all the uncertainty on top of it, and it's sort of a pressure cooker for uh, tricky financial times for producers. Mm-hmm. Another industry that we, we've been uh, watching really closely here is dairy. Um, th- th- things don't seem to be getting a whole lot better there. Uh, wh- where do you see uh, that segment headed? Yeah. That's a really great point, and, and we talk about the farm economy sort of from the big picture. Uh, we've had four years of really tough um, farm income errors. Uh, it really started, the downturn started in wheat. Uh, we saw wheat conditions two and three years ago really dire. That has since moved to, to dairy, as you mentioned. Dairy's got a, a long road to recovery. Again, it's all balanced back between supply and demand, so we got to think about uh, what are the key factors for supply and one of the key factors for uh, demand. I think when you look at dairy, uh, we're seeing a lot of culling going on in the last few months with respect to uh, heifers and retained heifers. And so that could provide some relief. So, you know, long term, you got to think about uh, there's just a lot of concerns and challenges with that, that dairy side of the equation. And, of course, this uncertainty, again, around uh, the weather is going to be driving 
some of their feed costs higher. When we think about higher corn prices, higher soybean prices, maybe some higher hay and forage prices. Because, of course, delayed planting for corn, for grain, is also delayed planting for silage corn. So I was, uh, and, and so they're facing some of this as well. But to back up again and reiterate, uh, we talk about the struggles of the farm economy at the big level, but we sort of move their geographic differences, and there are also commodity differences that we see play out. And there's different commodities, such as dairy right now, that's facing a much harder situation than the rest of the farm economy. As we move through the rest of 2019, the, the back half of the year, what uh, indicators are you guys going to be most closely watching? Uh, that's a great question. We're really watching MSP right now. There's a whole lot of uncertainty about that, around that program, and that's going to have a lot of potential impact for producers' bottom line. Uh, the big thing for producers to keep in mind is that they're paying three rounds of payments. Only the first round or the first third is promised. Uh, that second and third will be late 2019 after the fall harvest and early 2020. Uh, so we're encouraging producers to really watch how that process plays out, uh, really have good conversations with their internal teams and with uh, those around them to understand where are we at with these payments, uh, how it might they impact my, my final 2019 uh, budgets and scenarios and financial situations. So that one has a lot of impact for producers. The second one we're watching is commodity prices. You know, we typically see a bit of a weather rally. This one seems, at least on the surface, to be a little bit different. Uh, we're encouraging producers to keep a close eye on this, maybe opportunity to market some grain, uh, but also keeping in mind uh, where their production and acreage situation uh, for their specific farm has left their marketing plans. And so the big takeaway that we have, uh, we're encouraging producers to keep in mind, is it's always valuable to update your financial projections. It's especially uh, important to do it this year. There's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of things have changed. Maybe you didn't get all the acres you anticipated planted to get planted, but it's really important to stop, update your projections, and see where you are and keep doing that throughout the rest of 2019. Well, David, this is all great insight. And uh, if folks wanted to uh, to follow more uh, of what you do, where can they go? The easiest way to go is our website, AEI.ag. There's a lot of opportunities. Again, that's AEI.ag, Ag Economic Insights. My business partner and I will write a free weekly uh, update. We look at the key trends that are impacting the, the farm economy and how they might uh, impact producers. Uh, there's an opportunity to sign up to get that to your sent to your email uh, once a week on Monday mornings. I'm also on Twitter, as you mentioned, at David Whitmar. Uh, feel free to follow there, uh, trying to add some additional insights and conversation to the to the mix. But uh, you know, it's really uh, it's going to be 2019 is going to be an interesting year to see play out, and uh, it's time for uh, managers to really step up and manage carefully as they navigate the next few months. And do make sure you keep an eye on uh, what, what David and, and his partner are uh, putting out each week because it is very insightful and uh, uh, very well thought out. And we, we want to uh, make sure that uh, we check back in with you here as, as the year wraps up and we head into 2020 and kind of see where we're at. Uh, d- definitely some interesting times and uh, uh, all the more data and information you can arm yourself with, uh, the, the more successful you're going to be. So, David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. And uh, uh, we look forward to the next conversation. I look forward to it as well. We have 
have no idea what we'll be talking about. That's, uh, but we'll be ready to talk about it then. <laughs> All right. Thank you much. Back on Fast Line, Fast Track, and you know June is National Dairy Month, and we wanted to highlight a uh, rising star in the dairy industry. And I came across a story written by Jody Helmer on the FFA website that uh, chronicled the work being done by Isaac Nelson, who is a fourth-generation dairy farmer in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. Uh, he's got a really cool project that he's worked on that uh, won him some accolades, and I uh, just wanted him to uh, come on here and, and tell us a little bit about it. So, Isaac, welcome into Fast line fast track hey so you're a fourth generation farmer from sleepy eye minnesota when did you first get involved in your family's farming operation and how has your role on the farm expanded over the years so i've been involved on uh on their family's dairy farm when i was about probably four or five um <clears throat> at least working i've been showing animals since i was around three <clears throat> but um i guess my responsibility started when i was six or seven and that was just feeding the, the young calves grain right after school. Um, but over the years, uh, I've taken on more responsibilities. When I was around 9 or 10, I started helping out with um, our daily like chores shifts during milking. I'd help my mom milk. I'd uh, do bedding. I'd feed all the other calves um, grain, hay, feed them milk. Um, just a couple years ago, I started doing some of the, um, I guess, more technical tasks, like mixing feed for the cows, um, doing lots of assorted field work there. Um, and um, as my as uh, the FFA organization said, um, running my own personal herd of dairy cattle as well. So this is a great story. Isaac did some outstanding work to caught the eye of the National FFA organization and earn him the 2018 Dairy Production Entrepreneurship Proficiency Award for his supervised agricultural experience, in which he grew his herd from two registered Holsteins to nine cows, and in the process found a way to diversify income on his family's farm. So Isaac, tell us how all that came together for you. Um, so a big part of my, my project was um, just like everybody else was trying to increase my own production. Um, but what I did differently was that, um, uh, I used some of the, you know, the technologies available today to, um, create embryos, um, and take those out of my cows so that I would, um, be able to sell those, um, and get my genetics out there as well as, um, doing semen collections, um, from one of my bulls, uh, to help. I guess increase profits and get more of my genetics out there, um, and that's that's what was one of my big selling points for my uh, SAE project. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that I find fascinating about that is the fact that uh, if you listen to uh, a lot of what's going on in the media today, um, it, there's so much talk uh, about consolidation, talk about a glut in milk production, uh, you know, farms shutting down, and, and just hard times. Uh, on dairy farms, but I, I think you've really hit on something here that uh, as you embark upon a career in dairy, uh, really could take you to a different level of profitability and uh, help you stand out from the crowd. Yep. So uh, you just finished up your freshman year at uh, University of Minnesota. Uh, t- tell us about your major and uh, tell us about what your aspirations are uh, past college. Um, so my major is animal science with an emphasis on dairy production. Um, I'm also uh, trying to attempt a double major in um, 
the College of Science and Engineering at the U uh, to do something with uh, computer programming. And I'm hoping to combine the two majors and do ag tech outside of college, helping to develop and write some of the programs used by um, not just dairy producers, but um, all types of um, ag life. So outside of what you're doing with the university, what other kind of activities are you involved in? Um, I guess outside of the university, I'm still in. I'm still involved in uh, 4-H and FFA. It's my last year that I'm eligible to be in 4-H. Um, I still got a couple years. I can show livestock for FFA at um, the state fair. <clears throat> um, I'm currently doing an internship at uh, a co-op in Minnesota um, as my summer job. That's helping me learn more about the agronomy side of farming. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, really neat to know because um, that'll help me in the future for my own career when um, if I do take over our parents or my family farm um, it'll be good to know not just the cow side but also the crop side because cows have to eat too as a young guy getting ready to come into the dairy business you know we talked about some of the challenges what gives you optimism for the future of the dairy industry um, I guess Look, what gives me a bit of hope for like the future of the dairy industry is that um, things are getting better, not as quickly as we'd like them to, um, and it's. I think it's still going to be quite a while before um, everyone's going to be able to make a profit of some sort. But <clears throat> um, people are being a lot more positive um, about the dairy industry than they were just a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and it's really showing, as well as. Um, I guess just uh, the companies out there that are finding more things to do um, with, I guess, ag products and dairy products overall. Um, So that's really helping uh, farmers get their milk out there and get um, uh, prices higher for their product. Well, Isaac, we want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track, and we want to wish you the best of success as you embark on your career. Thanks. All right, uh, the, that was Isaac Nelson. He is a fourth-generation dairy farmer in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, and a student at the University of Minnesota. And now it's time to take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee, where we meet up with Peyton Taylor. Peyton appeared on the most recent season of American Idol and performed recently at the CMA Fest in Nashville and at the NRA National Convention in Indianapolis. She's currently touring the country with upcoming stops in New Jersey, Nashville, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Pennsylvania. Back at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop on Fast Line Fast Track, 417 Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee. And we've got a special guest to welcome in. It's Peyton Taylor. Hey. Peyton, how are you doing? Awesome, Brent. Thank you so much for having me today. We're catching her on her, uh, uh, just on the heels of her appearance on American Idol. Oh, yes. And now she's <laughs> gone from that to uh, some uh, just incredible singles coming out, uh, building a fodder for a larger album, and uh really taking Nashville by storm right now. So uh, we appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. I'd like to think I'm taking Nashville by storm, but... Uh, uh, (laughs) Well, everywhere I've turned here in the last couple of weeks, your your name keeps popping up. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I believe there's something to that. Oh, well, hopefully the buzz is is good. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So uh, we won't dwell on the idle appearance, but uh, just the (laughs) fact... Or the lack thereof idle uh, appearance. Well, just the fact that you were there... 
when so many people would have loved to have been in that position. And you had the opportunity to have a couple different brushes with it. Oh, yeah. Well, so for everyone just tuning in on that, my uh, sister, she's an R&B singer. Last year, she wanted to audition for American Idol. And she's my younger sister, uh-huh. so I thought, oh, well, not a play guitar for her. Uh-huh. Um, well, skip ahead. We got into the judges' room, and they asked uh, if I would play guitar for her. Uh-huh. Um, or they asked if I would sing Oh, well. And be considered to join the competition. And I went, mm, no, not really. But you don't see that because they edited that out. Yeah. Uh, you see me just going, oh, yes, absolutely. So if you want to see how that went down, just uh, check out American Idol Sisters. I call it the most uh, cringeworthy 15 <laughs> minutes of, of our lives. But um, we bo- ended up both getting gold tickets. And then we declined them just because we didn't want to fight, you know, sister against sister. It just... Uh-huh. It's not who we are. We're very close. So uh, and then this this year, uh, I got a call back to go, and I thought, why not? And I uh, got to go ahead and do that. But uh, that has since come to an end. Uh-huh. And um, I'm thankful because I get to come back to Nashville and do what I really love, which is, you know, isn't really reality TV. It's sure. actually making music. Yeah, and something you're very good at. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so tell me about the new singles here. You've got a, you've got a couple of them that are... Uh, are coming out. Uh, describe them to our listeners. Let's see. So in October, we released my very first song to streaming. That was called Whiskey on My Wings. And I was so scared to death, honestly, to put that one out there because I'd never put anything out on streaming before. Um, and that was, uh, we got a great reception from it. Got over 100,000 streams, which, you know, for a team of, you can barely count on one hand, uh, that, that that was really great. And then um, early March, we released a song that I'm so excited about called American Born and uh, I'll be playing for that playing that song here for you guys today and that one got on the New Music Nashville Spotify playlist uh-huh. which was a big deal to us yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh, yeah so Spotify kind of gave gave their blessing on it and yeah. uh, and it's it's out there so please go I say stream it like you mean it yeah <laughs> and another place you can stream it like you mean it is on the Fast Line Fast Track uh, playlist there uh, you go both of those songs have been added to that Thank playlist you so as well much. so uh, we've got about 150 songs on there now including yours so we're including all the past uh, current and future guests of the show on there thank you so, so much uh, see that's I, go check it out there that that's just the future of getting music to to, yeah. to the ears you know yeah. just completely unfiltered get right to it so i appreciate you putting that no, together we're, we're, we're glad to do it so everybody go check that out and uh, if uh, folks want to go other places and check you out where should they be going well we just revamped the website to look so nice and pretty so uh, if you would please go to uh, PeytonTaylor.com and it's P-A-Y-T-O-N Taylor.com um, my mother says you can re- remember it this way she uh, pays a ton for me <laughs> so that's <laughs> Payton uh, Taylor.com and you can see um, you can hear the music you can see some videos we're doing uh, you can see all the tour dates that we have coming up which they're just kind of creeping up on us slowly but surely and uh, you can get all the social media links. I live on my phone, so you, you can get right in touch with me that way. And if you can't tell through the uh, the, the, the magic of audio here, the, this girl has got charisma in spades. Oh, thank and you. I think part of that must come from your acting background. Tell us about your acting. Oh, well, I, I, I did some uh, theater as, uh, as a kid, um, but I just recently um, started picking up some film projects here in Nashville, and there's some, I mean, great projects coming out of Nashville right now. Um, can't quite tell what 
what's going on with those quite yet, but uh, a lot that honor country music, which, you know, singing and, and music's my number one. Film's just kind of fun here and there to do because you get to step in and be somebody else for a day. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that that's real neat. Nashville's really just exploding with that right now. So what's on your goal sheet? What are some of the things you want to accomplish as an artist? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> you know, of all the artists that I look up to, and there's a lot of them, I have to say that Dolly Parton is like many people's heroes, my hero as well. Um, I mean, she just did it all. She just did everything, yeah. you know? Um, but uh, I guess in the long term, maybe maybe try to get close to Dolly. But uh, here in, in the meantime, my goal is really just to hike up the minivan with, with my guys and play as many towns as we can, get out and meet you guys. You yeah. know, that's I, I, when I left the show, when I left American Idol, I said... Um, there is no real gold ticket. The gold ticket is going out and putting in the work. And uh, all these artists that we're surrounded by here at Ernest Tubb, I mean, everybody, your Loretta Lynn's, your, your, your Hank Snow's, your Hank Williams and Patsy Cline, you know, they put in the work. And while that was decades ago, I believe that is still the best way. Yeah. So um, that's I'm so excited to get back to doing where my heart really is. Yeah, and think about this. They didn't have the benefit of social media, they, you know, we can push a button and you could be around the world in a blink. I know. I, you know? I, that's so fun. I mean, I, I really do love talking to everybody on socials like I'm just chatting with my good friend, you know, and uh, that's really led to some incredible relationships with people just across the country. You know, now I have friends everywhere. Um I, I could couch surf if I needed to across the country, I think, go. at this point. <laughs> but uh, Always yeah. important as a musician. Exactly. But uh, please, shoot shoot me a message, Instagram especially. I, I love that. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where you can find me, and I'm really excited about what's to come. Well, you talked about Dolly earlier. Who were some of your other musical influences? <sighs> so, uh, man... I'd have to say from a writing standpoint, I really love what Emmy Lou does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so- someone asked me if there was one album I had to take onto a desert island, it would be the trio record. That's just because it's, you know, Linda yeah. and, and Emmy Lou and Dolly all yeah. in one. Um, so that, that would be my desert island record. Um, just all of those ladies because they really had to face a, a bunch, you know, to get where they are now. And I give them so much respect. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think from, a <laughs> from, from a vocal perspective to, um, someone told me that I sounded like Trisha Yearwood and my mouth just dropped because I think she's just mm. incredible. So I guess vocally Trisha Yearwood, but <laughs> just all, all the ladies in, in country music really just had to go, go against a big machine and, uh, Hopefully I can do that someday. Hmm. How much songwriting are you doing? A lot, uh, a lot. You know, I, I say sometimes when, when I'm in Nashville, I'm just kind of sitting in a writer's room in, in four walls and two guitars and two people pouring our hearts out. And uh, that's that's super rewarding at, at the end of it. During it, it feels like you could just put your head through one of those walls because you get stuck with writer's block or trying to rhyme the word girl with something that's not world because world and girl are always together um but we've been doing a lot of writing we've been um these singles that are up now we're going to be having some more kind of 
waterfalling is, is the new term um, as the year goes on. So as we get some more stuff in the studio, we'll record them up, and the ones that we love, we'll roll them out somehow. <laughs> so how does a Jersey girl get hooked up with country music? Where, where does that come Well, from? it's funny you say that here. Uh, honestly, from a record collection. Uh, my grandfather had a record collection that looked a lot like the records here. <laughs> and so I'd say he had a great taste in music, and um, he passed in 2006, so I was only a fourth grader, but he gave me his record collection. Wow. So I feel like like I got to learn who he was by listening to those songs and um, I ended up just really connecting with them. I loved the stories that were in the country records. He had lost 70s classic rock, which which I love. Um, but the stories in the country records was what drew me to country music. Yeah. And then in 2009, I made a trip down here with a um, kind of like that TV show Glee. That's what it was. That was that's what it was like. Um, uh-huh. the, my my choir came down here to Nashville and then after seeing the town and and getting the you know the vibe of the writers I I just I got it immediately I knew that this is what I what I it wasn't what I wanted to do it was what I had to do at that point um so we spent a couple years going back and forth from Jersey to Nashville in a little minivan we called it the hotel windstar because it was a Ford windstar and uh then we eventually made the move and uh no looking back from there. That's excellent. So uh, if I can give you any bit of encouragement, you talk about the depth of the songwriting and the uh, the storytelling. Bring that back. There's not enough of that. Oh, boy. There's not enough of that. I was just having <laughs> I, that conversation with another artist try. who was in here earlier. Oh, my goodness. I You know, <laughs> there's so many save country music, you know, ha- uh, hashtags and campaigns. And, you know, me- music evolves over time. You know, it, it always has. Mm-hmm. But... Um, there's something about what drew me to the country music was the stories. And I'm yeah. talking even in like, you know, the 90s, early 2000s, the Trisha Yearwood, Walk Away Joe, She's in Love with the Boy. Um, you know, I'm just not hearing that as much yeah. on, on, on radio. And uh, if, if I could be somebody to bring that back, um, that, that would mean a lot. And I know that people are hungry for it. Yeah. They may have to go to a different platform to get it. Yes, fast yes. line, fast track, right. podcast, yep. right and here. playlist. That's right. Um, but I really appreciate you keeping those kinds of songs yeah. alive. And that's uh, you know that's definitely the mission. And think about this: you won't have to figure out how to rhyme, girl. Girl, what what, what else rhymes with girl? I don't know. You won't have to figure it out. Though. You're telling <laughs> stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be able to tell the stories. I won't have to put a, a, a little snap track in, in the yeah. back like that. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, you just put, say girl and then get a snap track. And that, De- <laughs> that seems to be the thing. Death to snap tracks. <laughs> we're, we're advocating that right here, right now. Oh, uh, well, who, who, hey, I and might get up back, there and snap a little bit. I don't know. And bring okay. back some steel guitar while we're at it. Yes, please, 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 please bring that back. And twin fiddles. That might be a little hard. I can only pay so many band guys. <laughs> I can only pay so many utility players right now. <laughs> but hey, trust me, once we can flesh out that band, we'll get as much going as we can. That's excellent. So uh, again, if people want to check out your music, where do they go? PeytonTaylor.com, P-A-Y-T-O-N, Taylor.com. And check her out, Facebook, Instagram, where else? Twitter. All that. All, all that. All I'm all over YouTube. there. And uh, please don't don't be afraid. Shoot me a message. If uh, I, I do my best to try to get back to everybody. Excellent. Well, we sure appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you. We're definitely going to be keeping up with your career. And as you crank out those new songs, we want you back here to share them with our listeners. Absolutely. I'd love to. Excellent. So we're going to let her go get mic'd up here and play a couple for you. All right. Hey, everybody. 
My name is Peyton Taylor. I'm here at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, uh, really right in front of the Midnight Chimpery stage, which is crazy. Um, I'm going to sing a couple songs here. First one goes out to all the, uh, all the great little small towns I've had the blessing of getting to see across this country from a tour bus window. This is called American Born. Tails by the levee where the water hits the stars. It's a rust on that old Chevy. It's a beatable guitar. Peach trees down in Georgia. It's that shining old fall. It's that boy in California with the Carolina draw. It's American born. It's as real as the dirt on your boots. Oh, it's American born. Running free, running deep as your Cherry Coca Cola, wearing blue suede for the king. It's that crank and spin Victrola when the vinyl starts to sing. It's that lonesome cardboard cowboy on a pack of marble reds. It's that Alabama plowboy putting that summer sun to bed. It's American born. It's as real as the dirt on your boots. Oh, it's American born. Sweet home muscle shows, music stirring in your soul. Daisy chain pouring rain, what's that rock and roll? It's the blues in Mississippi, ankle deep in Delta mud. It's the shot of Lynchburg whiskey, puts that southern in your blood. It's that denim in your blue jeans, it's the red in that Corvette. It's the East Coast on that sits down in the wild. It's American born It's as real as the dirt on your boots Oh, it's American born Run free, running deep as your roots Oh, it's American born Oh, it's American born It's American born It's American born an audience of what? Hi, everyone. <laughs> We're checking for a podcast, so to the listeners who maybe don't uh, know what's going on, it's filling up in here, and it's so awesome. Let me tell you, when I played Broadway years ago, uh, it, it was never this full. <laughs> Thank you, guys, for sticking around. Um, let's see. Another one? All right. Okay, cool. Just kick me off when you need to. If I can wear one of those dresses, you'll never get rid of me. All right, here we go. This one's called Whiskey on My Wings.
I've never been perfect I'm like a flower growing wild I kind of keep swerving Time that straight and narrow mile I'm born again and born to run Got a little revel in my blood I lay my head down on that morning sun My feeling on my halo Saturday night ain't my time to lay low Baptized, faded, white and holy dreams Hey, mama's been praying for my salvation Somewhere between amazing grace and dragging it late When I hear the church bells ring With a little whiskey, a little whiskey on Thinking right and doing wrong I'm fighting temptation But that fight don't last too long I'm like the angel that ain't quite divine I'll skip the water, drink the wine My road to heaven's gonna be an uphill climb My peeling out on my halo Saturday night ain't my time to Baptized, faded, white, and holy jeans. Hey, mama's been praying for my salvation. Somewhere between amazing grace and dragging it late. When I hear the church bells ring with a little whiskey, a little whiskey on my wings. Now take me downtown where the nights are longer music's loud and the drinks are stronger carry me down to the muddy water my billy leon on my halo saturday night ain't my time to lay low I'm baptized fading white holy dreams and mama's been praying for my salvation so Go to church real quick. Ready? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved one big old hot mess like me. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. We're, we're on Broadway, and I don't even have any liquor here. <laughs> this feels... <laughs> I guess it means that y'all are actually listening. What? <laughs> let's see. Um, let's do... Uh, I'm 
I was going to go with the cute, sappy song, but um, you know what? I'm really not in that kind of mood today. I wanted to write a song that was like a Lifetime movie, and we did. This is called Shotgun and a Shovel. <laughs> Mercury didn't belong to me. I found some lipstick on his collar that just ain't my shade of Maybelline. And on his credit card, I saw he bought some flowers that I didn't get. I think I'm over it. Sometimes all you need is a little money. Sometimes all you need is a little love. Little bit of milk, a little bit of honey, or a good word from the Lord above. Sometimes all you need is a friend to get you out of trouble. But all you need every now and then is a shotgun and a show. Oh, yeah. I ain't the kind of girl to go do something crazy at the drop of a hat. Mama taught me better than that. But I ain't about to be with somebody that goes prowling like some alley cat, no. Sisters and brothers, I say one way or another, he'll be history. It might be a mystery. Sometimes all you need is a little money. Sometimes all you need is a little love. Little bit of milk, a little bit of honey, or a good word from the Lord above. Sometimes all out of trouble but all you need every now and then is a shotgun shovel oh, oh. start some gossip at the beauty shop about how he went M.I.A. with some pretty thing. And I'll tell his relatives from Cleveland that one day he just up and ran away. I'll keep his clothes here in the closet and keep acting like he's coming back. But y'all don't bet on that. Sometimes all you need is a little Sometimes all you need is a little love, a little bit of milk, a little bit of honey, or a good word from the Lord above. Sometimes all you need is a friend to get you out of trouble, but all you need every now and then is a shotgun and a shovel. Oh,
that was the music of Peyton Taylor. What a voice. We can't wait to watch her go far in her singing career. We want to thank her for being our guest, and we want you to be sure to check her out at PeytonTaylor.com. And if you're in the market for farm equipment, make sure you make your first stop, FastLine.com. Check out our new improved price comparison tool with the new Iron Average. Also, make sure you follow FastLine Fast Track on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest, and add our Spotify playlist to your music library. On the next episode, we'll celebrate the birthday of our great nation in style. You won't want to miss it, so please come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to FastLine Fast Track, presented by FastLine Media Group. To learn more about FastLine's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. 